Hi, listeners. Welcome to Sheep 2.0 Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Ramona. And I'm Jackie. Um, Jack, how much did you love Andrea Walsh? Oh my God, Ramona. I was so excited to have Andrea on. And as you know, anyone who's never done a podcast, um, yourself included, they're always very trepidatious about coming on to a podcast. And uh, I thought Andrea was amazing. But uh, she was definitely full of some surprises, didn't you think? She was. Why don't you tell everybody who Andrea is? Well, Andrea Walsh, MD, is our new resident sort of ob expert. Um, she actually lives in New York and practices out of New York, but she, um, she also lives half of her time in Toronto and has two sons here. Um, what I love about Andrea, and I think what you and I both picked up on in the podcast, is how much she is a real advocate for women and for women's health. Um, but she spends a lot of time caring for women who are undergoing the transition into menopause and helping to manage the side effects. So um, I don't know about your mother, but when we went in, I thought we were going to do a little basic perimenopause, menopause 101, what are the differences, what you need to know. But wow, we unpacked a lot of stuff in that conversation. And I don't know if you saw my face during some of the comments she was making, but um, there was definitely a lot of things I did not know about my body. Uh, let's just say south of the border. Yeah, exactly. Um, I could have talked to her for hours. And in fact, um, what our listeners don't know is there was like a huge windstorm in Toronto <laughs> yesterday. Uh, both of our uh, internet kept cutting out. I think even Andrea cut out at one point. We had a lot of technical difficulties and we burned through an hour really quick. So we actually didn't get to finish a lot of the questions that we wanted to talk to Andrea about. And um, so we do want to have her back for, for many more, but for at least part two on this particular podcast to finish our discussions around um, the health risks associated with menopause, because we really only touched with osteoporosis, but there are others that we should talk about, mm -hmm. and some of the other symptoms and managing those symptoms. And she has so much amazing information to share with us. So stay tuned, and we'll keep you guys posted on uh, when we're going to have her back. And in the meantime, have a listen and enjoy Andrea Walsh. Yeah, I mean, definitely tune into this one because even though like Ramona, like you said, we didn't get to go through the laundry list of symptoms and, and potential health risks, I thought the podcast was just so chock full of information I had really no idea about. So it's worth a listen, guys. And, uh, and as Ramona said, we'll have Andrea back. She's going to be a regular expert for us. So tune in. Hi guys, tonight I am joined by my partner Ramona and Andrea Walsh, and we've got a really interesting topic uh, on our discussion board, and uh, we've got Andrea Walsh here with us. Andrea is an MD and a certified OB-GYN who advocates for women's health, which is right up our alley, right Ramona? Sure is. <laughs> so um, Andrea, <laughs> we're excited to have you as our guest because... You've got a lot of answers, and we've got a lot of questions, so if you're okay with it, we'd love to dive in and um, just pick your brain a little bit about perimenopause and menopause, and, um, and we've got a list of questions for you. Are you ready for us? Yes, absolutely. I think this is a really important topic, so I'm ready to answer your questions whenever you're ready. 
<laughs> okay. Well, maybe you could um, give us a little bit of information about your practice and your experience, um, just so our listeners know, um, you know, where your knowledge is coming from, and then uh, and then we're going to bombard you <laughs> with the questions we've been saving up. Sure. I actually currently work in Western New York, as you mentioned, as a board-certified OBGYN. I've been practicing for eight years now um, and do both general OB and general GYN, as well as gynecological surgery. Um, and I am from Canada, though, and live in Toronto with my two boys, who are 10 and 12. And I, am, I think this topic is extremely important for women to start discussing, not only with their physicians, but with their friends and family, because as you mentioned, you know, this topic tends to be very taboo and people don't discuss it. So I'm really excited about um, this evolution of us opening up as women and discussing this topic with each other. That's great. And I think, you know, a lot of women don't even realize um, what's when their body's about to change. Could you talk a little bit about sort of perimenopause and the beginnings of it and what are, what are the signs? What should women be looking for? Sure. And I think that perimenopause, a lot of women do not even know what that is. They didn't even know it existed. <laughs> and it's really just the years leading up to menopause. You could be in perimenopause long before you even know it. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So it's, it's very variable. So it's hard to tell you know, a woman when it's going to happen specifically for them. Mm -hmm. You know, on average, it happens, you know, for age 45 to 47. And perimenopause is really dictated by the changes in the ovaries. And the ovaries start to fluctuate the levels of estrogen that they produce. And some women can notice this with changes in their cycle. And again, this is variable, so uh, we can't tell women specifically what's gonna happen to them, but their cycle can sometimes lighten, it can sometimes get heavier, it can sometimes become very irregular and you may start to skip months, or you may start to bleed in between your periods as well. And this is sort of um, so where women in their, in their 40s are going, holy shit, I'm pregnant. <laughs> right. Right. And it's actually, you know, it's interesting that you bring that up because that's really what sometimes gets missed is that people go in thinking, oh, I'm old. I can't be pregnant. You know, I must be going through menopause, but then they really are pregnant. And sometimes that gets missed and it has to be the first thing on the radar that we think about. As long as we're menstruating females, regardless of what's going on with our cycle, the first thing we have to think about is pregnancy. Absolutely. Right. I did so many EPT tests and it, it, <laughs> I was at a party and I realized, holy crap, girls were talking about, women were talking about their periods. And I was like, wait a minute, I haven't seen mine for a while, but I kind of knew yeah. I couldn't be pregnant because I didn't have a libido. But um, still, I, I still <laughs> took the test because yeah, that is obviously that's, that's what you go through for 20, 30, 40 years, right? You think you're pregnant all the time. Every time you miss a period, that's your go-to. Right, right. But then I think women start to transition how they're thinking and they think that that's not a possibility anymore. So it's good for us to still keep that on the radar. 
Is it really um, in terms of your cycle? Is that like when women are going through perimenopause, is that really the, the biggest indicator? Are there any other things that, that are happening around that time outside of their menstrual cycle being a bit off? Yes, absolutely. So um, the other most common symptoms are hot flashes, which really are described as a sudden rush of heat to the face or upper body. And these can be variable. They can last for a second, um, a couple seconds, up to minutes. Uh, and they do variable, they're, they are variable in frequency as well. Um, some women you know, don't get them at all and some women will get them once or twice a year and some women will get them every day multiple times a day so it's again variable from person to person um these hot flashes can also lead to night sweat uh, which can in turn lead to insomnia as well so it's kind of an endless circle mm -hmm. and this is when a lot of women become a little bit more in tune with what's going on and start to question things right Mm -hmm. I've also heard that you can go into perimenopause, like I, I think I saw a stat recently that I shared that said one in a hundred women actually start perimenopause in their mid to late 30s. Have you heard that? Yes, yes, absolutely. You know, the one thing is you just have to see a physician if you're questioning how your cycle is, uh, particularly when you're not expecting things to be different. Um, and when you're less than 40, if things start to drastically change with your cycle or you're having some of the symptoms that we talked about, you really need to be seen because there can be other causes of those changes as well. Right. Okay. So it's a pretty confusing mm -hmm. time. And I, I have found from my own personal experience that um, women don't tend to start thinking about perimenopause um, when they get maybe a hot flash. And also, too, it, hot flashes are tricky because um, you get them when you're pregnant. A lot of people get them when they're pregnant. Um, so we could sort of feel mm -hmm. like that might be a little pregnancy hangover. I feel like it's when that first period becomes a bit wonky, that's when women start to question what's happening. So I feel like it is like, like mm -hmm. when people start to sort of tune into it is directly linked to their menstrual cycle. I think that we can explain away a hot right. or a mood swing, you know, we can blame the kids and our husbands or whatever, but when you start to, your period <laughs> starts going wonky, then you're kind of like, huh, something is yeah. here. Yeah. And is there, is there any uh, concern yeah. about not diagnosing perimenopause? Like, like I didn't have it diagnosed until it was way too late, but, um, like is like is it okay to just sort of carry on and and not worry about it, or are there any sort of red flags you think that we should be looking for um, that trigger us to maybe go see our physician or our OB guy and see what's going on? Right. So yes, I I agree that when you start to see some signs, for instance, the menstrual changes, it is important to go see your physician. Because as I briefly touched on before, there can be other causes of those changes that do have treatment. Uh, perimenopause, per se, does not necessarily need to be treated unless it is 
significantly affecting your daily life, um, like the symptoms that we discussed, hot flashes and um, also vaginal changes that we didn't talk about and changes in your libido and intercourse and all of that, which we can touch on more as well. But we need to make sure as a physician that there aren't any abnormalities with your thyroid, with your prolactin levels. Um, there can also be physical changes uh, in your uterus that can cause abnormal bleeding, such as uh, fibroids and polyps, um, or a vaginal infection can ca also cause abnormal bleeding. Um, so it's a good idea to see your physician so that they can go through the proper history and exam. And it's very common to also get blood tests done during this time to determine whether you are starting to make changes into menopause, um, as well as to check your thyroid levels and prolactin levels. Rule out pregnancy, of course, too, and get an ultrasound to look at the uterus to see if there are any abnormalities there. Um, with the abnormal bleeding, if you're over 40 years old, the other thing that's very important that we want to make sure we address is whether the lining of the uterus is normal and whether we have any concerns that there could be an abnormal tissue there that could be leading to cancer. So often your physician would do an endometrial biopsy as well to make sure that there aren't any abnormalities there. Are there any other gynecological issues that would promote early menopause in some women? Like there are some women that have, that, you know, are plagued with gynecological issues for in their thirties or whatever. Would that make them candidates for earlier perimenopause or menopause? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. So, um, Definitely looking at family history is important. So looking at what age your mom started to go through menopause uh, can be an indicator of when you're going to go through menopause as well as other female family members. Um, but also other medical um, history or medical issues can play a role as well. Uh, if patients have had previously been treated for cancer and have received chemotherapy or radiation, they can be placed into, um, into menopause because of those medications. Mm -hmm. Sometimes certain other medications that uh, treat, say, depression or um, any, some, some of the other antipsychotic medications as well, um, epileptic medications. There are many different types of medications oh. that can alter your um, periods as well. So um, they won't necessarily put you into a permanent state of menopause, but they can alter your cycle. So it's good to think about those aspects too. Okay. And then naturally, if you've lost your period for a year consistently, that is when you are considered in menopause. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. So by definition, for 12 months, if you've had no bleeding, you are in menopause. Okay. And then that's when like a whole host of other side effects and symptoms can start happening. Is that right? Yeah. And really a lot of the, the symptoms can uh, be similar to what you are, are experiencing during perimenopause. And some women don't 
don't have any of the symptoms during perimenopause, but then they get them all once they're in menopause, mm-hmm. or it's the opposite. Some some women have, um, you know, all their symptoms uh, during perimenopause and then none in menopause. So it's it can be vice versa. Okay, so the average age of menopause is fifty one, and um, really it's when the ovaries have stopped making estrogen. Um, and it marks the end of our reproductive years, which some women are happy about and others are not. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, yeah. have, I have a question, then, um, Andrea, about, and I just wanted to go back a little bit. Um, you mentioned, you know, when you when you suspect that perimenopause is on the horizon or you're in it, that you should go to your doctor and get some tests done. Um, Ramona, I, I'd be curious to know about your own experience, but... Um, I don't know if the differential here is that you're working in New York and and we're um, seeking help in Toronto while we go through this, but um, I have had two doctors Mm -hmm. uh, during perimenopause and and menopause, and both of them have told me there's no real blood work that can be done, and there were no tests done for me. Um, I did explain about painful sex, uh, libido, depression, a few things. Um, mm-hmm. but no, I never had any blood work done. I had standard blood work done, but, um, it, it showed that all my results were normal, which seems a little abnormal cause I'm anemic by nature. Um, I did go to a mm-hmm. nutritionist, Susan Schroeder, who, um, did, um, a dry and wet blood analysis and the results were quite different. They were, they were pretty revealing. And in doing that, I've been able to course correct a few of the problems I've been having. But uh, yeah, I, I wasn't able mm-hmm. to, to get a test or get any real definitive answers or course of action uh, when I went in. Do you think that's a difference in our countries or do you think I wasn't asking the right questions or I don't know, what, would, what could that have been? Could, could I ask, were you seeing a, a family physician or an OBGYN? An OBGYN, I'll never learn to say that. I don't know why I've always said OBGYN. It's verbally economical. Oh, that's fine. Either way, it's fine. <laughs> but yeah, I was, I was seeing my, my OBGYN. I've been with her for a long time. She delivered my baby, and she was great. It's just that, um, yeah, like mm-hmm. the information I got was there is no information. It is what it is kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so a good in terms of the... Who should we be asking? Like, yeah. Who's our first line of defense? And then what should we be asking? Right. Well, and it should go both ways because you do need to advocate for yourself as a patient uh, as well. Your physician should be going through, especially if you're having a problem visit, but if you're even having just your annual routine visit, they should be asking you how your periods are. And if there are changes in your period, then the next questions are, are you having any of the symptoms that we talked about, hot flashes, et cetera. And that should kind of be a red flag to your physician that something is happening and that we need to further investigate that. Um, as a patient, you know, I would encourage you to speak up for yourself. I think a lot of women are afraid to talk about these things and yeah. afraid to open up about what they're experiencing, either because they don't think that it's a problem or it shouldn't be a problem and they're just complaining. Um, 
or they just don't have the com the um, comfort to bring it up to their physician. So that's why it is important for your physician to really ask those questions to you uh, to try and draw out that information. But as a patient, you know, I would encourage you to ask questions and to say, you know, my periods are starting to do this, this, and this. Is this something that I should worry about? Do I need to get any extra testing to make sure it isn't anything concerning? Um, and should I expect more changes to happen or will it continue on like this? And do I need anything else done? You know, so trying to ask as many questions as you can and try and make the topic comfortable for you is the best way to approach it. That's a really good point. Um, I, th I think that lends itself to all issues around women's health. I feel like sometimes we feel we're a burden when we push harder for answers. And the reality is, um, mm -hmm. you know, if you don't push for those answers, it's your health at risk. And, you know, it's... Um, right. It's okay to ask for answers to yeah. questions like we don't know these things, but it does come, it does stem from that general discomfort of the whole topic. And I think, um, I think the problem that a lot of women like us have is um, we don't know the questions to ask because we don't know what's going on. So we go in and we might have an irregular period, but we may not tie it to the fact that we're also having painful sex or um, trouble sleeping or mood swings like we just may not put the pieces right because I think a lot of women um, are sometimes in shock or denial that they could potentially be in perimenopause I, I think it shocks them that they're already at that point in their life like it catches you off guard right absolutely a lot of people aren't expecting it um, so I agree you know, some people come in either extremely worried and they want to know what's happening and other women kind of ignore it and they think yeah oh it's fine it's just a little bit of a change so i'm not going to worry about it um is there one consistent misconception uh around menopause when women come into your office and see you for the first time and, and bring it up or you bring it up with them uh, is there one consistent misconception around menopause Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I would say the most common one that I hear is that people think it only lasts for a year or two. <laughs> and then they feel normal again. <laughs> yeah. And this is where we yeah, see if only, the listeners drop off the podcast. <laughs> That's right. It's all a lie, people. It is not just for a year. Now, some, like you said, every scenario is different for every person. Um, mm -hmm. I know my scenario is different than Jack's, as, as I've shared before on this podcast, that uh, I had my ovaries removed prophylactically. So I've been in menopause before I was 40. Um, and right. I feel like, you know, I'm 44 now. And I mm -hmm. feel like my symptoms evolve and change as every year goes by. Um, so I really wanted to take an opportunity to do a deeper dive with you on those symptoms, the ones that mm -hmm. really, for most of us, like, 
have a negative impact on our quality of life. And we're all trying to find a way to relieve some of those symptoms and feel like ourselves and, and, you know, try to relate to our partners still and those sort of things. I mean, a lot of, for me, Mm -hmm. um, my symptoms definitely are around, um, you know, the, the, the sexual symptoms and, Mm -hmm. and also the like (laughs) mental clarity and like, I feel brain dead (laughs) and like things like that. So I'd love to to sort of hone in on some of those. And I thought maybe we could start on like the vaginal health because that's something that, you know, a lot of people don't, don't really know a lot about, but that happens. I've brought it up with some of, some of my friends. I've, I've, Mm -hmm. I've heard a new term recently called GSM, which I think describes like the menopause and you can probably correct me if I'm wrong, but describes like the various menopausal symptoms around the genital area. Like it's not just like vaginal atrophy. It's a whole other thing, like sexual symptoms and urinary symptoms and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're, you're right there. It's not just specific to the vagina. The urethra is highly affected Uh, by it as well. And it can actually lead to um, irritation, increased uh, frequency of urination, uh, and uh, UTIs or urinary tract infections as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And and really what happens to all of those tissues in that area during menopause is that the, the decreased estrogen, or you may hear hypoestrogen, um, is decreasing blood flow to the area and it, and it really changes the way the tissues um, look and feel and function. And so what we notice is that the tissues that are well estrogenized are very plump and thicker. Um, and in menopause, our vaginal and vulvar tissues tend to get really thin. And we actually compare it often. Unfortunately, this is the term we use, cigarette paper. Hey, I told Ramona. I told you said that. You believe me. Thank you. And then often a lot of the, the tissues are atrophying or becoming you know, less muscular and more friable um, and thinning out. And even we'll notice changes um, in the structure. So the labias tend to sometimes even kind of become one. So they're not quite as separate. Um, and the architecture of the whole vulva changes. We can also get narrowing of the introitus or the opening of the vagina and then the mucosa, which is the inner layer of the vagina becomes quite dry and again, thinned out. Now there are a lot of things going on. Yeah. And you know, when you talk about the opening, possibly shrinking Mm -hmm. and that sort of thing, Jack is obsessed with the fact that she heard somewhere, if you don't use it, you lose it. (laughs) From what I understand, there's a bit of truth around that. 
Could you speak a little bit? About oh, absolutely. That? Thank you. There's a lot yes. of thinking around that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because if you if you are not um, using it, as <laughs> Jackie likes to say, then you know all those because we're losing that elasticity in those tissues. It it doesn't really stretch as well as it used to. So it it really needs you know, unfortunately, the men would like to hear this. It needs constant use to stay <laughs> how it normally is um, to a point where, you know, some women, we encourage using dilators and, um, and vibrators if they need to, uh, to help with that and try and maintain that. Um, and, and even, you know, from a point of view as a, as a physician, it becomes extremely uncomfortable and difficult to have vaginal exams at the doctor when you haven't been having intercourse, you're going through menopause, and your whole vagina and vulva is really narrowing. And it's extremely painful for a lot of these women to have exams done. Um, Absolutely. I'm, I'm one of those mm -hmm. women, so I can definitely relate to that. Um, but that um, that's yeah. I didn't understand that it meant things were like shutting and closing up for business, but um, I'm curious <laughs> because, um, you know, dryness is a big issue and then all the other issues you talked about, um, I find um, my pap smear is excruciatingly painful. Um, we can use the word uncomfortable, but I'm going to go with excruciating. And I've been taking... Um, a suppository uh, and I mm -hmm. will write it down in the post because I can't remember the name fem vagifem I think it is uh, with just a little yeah. estrogen in it it has made a difference which is great mm -hmm. I am a little mm -hmm. worried because I'm postmenopausal about putting estrogen into my body but one of the big questions I think I have from doing a lot of research when I started to notice that sex was very painful and before I went on the Vagifem is there is a difference between a vaginal moisturizer and a lubricant and I, I want to ask you what the difference is but also some of the lubricants on the market um, have some key ingredients that are actually very drying post coital if you will so they're actually not very good for you so um, can you speak to both those things? Like, first of all, what is the difference between a moisturizer and a lube, both in what they, like what, what they do and what you use them for? Right. So the lubricants tend to be more water-based, um, and they, they are more in tune with your normal lubrication. So they're the, mo the most um, similar to your natural lubrication. Um, the moisturizers tend to be a little bit um, different from what you would normally pr produce. Um, so that's really the, the main difference. I tend to lean more towards a lubricant because it is more like your natural, naturally produced lubrication. Okay. Um and I know there are great products out there. Demiva has a really great moisturizer that is more for your external, your, um, your lips. Um, it's important mm -hmm. to keep that moisturized too. That's something women don't really think about, do we? That, you know, it's not just internal moisturization. You want to keep moisture 
you want to keep moisturized everywhere. Yes, absolutely. Um, because as those tissues are getting thinner, more friable, they tend to get drier. And that dryness is very irritating. It can be very itchy. Uh, so a lot of patients have more symptoms um, as they go through menopause. So there is a condition that can happen on the outside of the vagina on the vulvar tissues called lichen sclerosis. And women present with the symptoms we were describing, dryness, itching, irritation, um, and they're quite bothered by that. What they don't realize often is that there are also some discolorations or color changes that happen as well on those tissues that we notice when we examine them. And these color changes are often whitening of the skin in certain areas. Sometimes it can be quite red as well. So it's variable from person to person. And in order for it to be truly diagnosed, you need to have a biopsy done, which is just a little skin biopsy. And if it comes back like in sclerosis, then the first line treatment is a steroid cream. And the reason I wanted to bring this up is because if lichen sclerosis goes without treatment for many years, then it can actually turn into squamous cell carcinoma, which is a type of skin cancer. So oh, it, wow. it is important that, yeah, so it is important that if you are having these uh, irritations, dryness, the itching, and nothing is really helping it, you really should get seen by your physician and make sure that you uh, get that evaluated. That's really good to know. Um, that leads me to a, a big question, which is, you know, we talked about earlier, there are, you know, there are issues if you let perimenopause go. Um, Ramona brought up the point that it could replicate something else that's going on in your body. But what about menopause? Once you hit menopause, uh, you are no longer getting your period, you're done. Um, is there a danger of not looking into what's happening in your body and just sort of going with it? Like, or if you just let menopause go naturally, can there be some health risks that you're not aware that we're not aware of? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, and that that brings up an excellent point. You know, menopause is a very natural change, and some women go through it essentially unscathed, meaning they, they're not having a lot of symptoms, they're not having any issues, and which is perfectly normal. And we don't necessarily want to be too invasive during this natural process unless it's being, it's affecting women to the point that their daily lives are impacted. Um, but there are important health risks that we want to stay on top of, such as um, osteoporosis. Um, so osteoporosis is, is thinning of the bones. Um, and this is most likely to kind of peak the first five years of menopause. Um, and that's when the most bone loss happens. And this is again, because of the reduction of estrogen in your body, the most common places affected are your hips, wrist, and spine. And these, these things are not necessarily evaluated unless you are having uh, particular symptoms or you're at high risk for this. And so what would those symptoms be? 
sure. So if you're very thin, you're at higher risk. Um, if you have had a lot of previous fractures, you're at increased risk. Um, if you're a smoker, if you take any sort of steroid medications, um, if you have a family member who has had a hip fracture before. Um, so that those are the yeah, main risk factors for osteoporosis. Okay, good to know. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, as well as if you're not, you know, if you're um, wheelchair bound, you know, you're not doing any weight bearing, that's also a, an increased risk. Mm -hmm. And we have talked a lot about um, weight bearing activities and, and those kind right. of things that are really important to do um, as you enter menopause and are in menopause. And I guess that's the reason why. Yeah, because yes, you really build absolutely. up that bone mass, right? Yes. Yep. And you know, it's interesting because a lot of I see a lot of patients, especially as they get older, they love to swim. And swimming is a great healthy activity, but it is not weight bearing. So it is not helpful for your bone health um, right. and for pre preventing osteoporosis. Um, and you know, sometimes there is this fine line because we also have to be more cautious of balance but we don't want to encourage patients to do activity where they could fall and break their hip because they would be at increased risk of that if they're already having some bone loss right mm -hmm. so we have to be careful about our recommendations there as well and that's a that's such mm -hmm. a tricky scenario because with menopause and perimenopause like we start to put on some extra pounds in the middle and so the first thing we want to do is like pick up, take up running or keep running or, you know, high cardio mm -hmm. to burn off that fat. Whereas, mm -hmm. you know, like swimming, but we really need to burn that fat more by building more muscle and burning through muscle and building our bone health. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, a combination of, of both is great. If you know, even just a lot of walking, because that's considered a weight-bearing activity. But if you are healthy enough to actually pick up weights and do an organized um, event, you know, where you have proper support, either a trainer or within a class setting, that can give you exercises to help to build that muscle mass and um, give you more strength, it's going to help support the core of your body tremendously. Yeah. Um, and actually, to that point, Ramona and I are going to be having Kelly Taphouse on for an episode. Kelly, uh, as you know, Andrea, mm -hmm. um, Move Fitness yes. and really focuses on women's um, physical and, and mental health uh, after 40. And we did our event at Move Fitness and um, Kelly's mm -hmm. information was phenomenal. I mean, Ramona, I think you and I both found it so eye-opening we thought we knew everything <laughs> and then we heard what kelly yeah. had to say we were like wow that's really good information all women need to know yeah. so so that, yeah yeah that's that's wonderful you know um andrea we're so excited that you're going to be a regular expert with us and uh we've only just scratched the surface on this episode uh and there's so much Definitely. more we want to keep talking about and we encourage everyone listening to send your questions in because Andrea's got great answers, um, armed with information. And 
you know, we want to keep this conversation open and we want women to feel positive and hopeful about it. And, you know, I think with She 2.0, we truly believe that knowledge is power. And the more you know, the healthier you're going to be, the more optimal this experience is going to be for everybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for bringing up the topic and getting women to discuss this more. It's great. Well, we're really, we're happy that you're, you're coming on board. We're going to hear from you more often. And we're already seeing from our, our, the podcast that we posted, women are starting to come forward with their questions. We're seeing the conversation open up and we're super excited about that. And, you know, we're, we're trying everything. Ramona and I, we're learning, we're reading, we're trying different things ourselves. So um, we're going to be sharing that information, but Andre, I can't thank you enough for joining us on this episode and, and we're looking forward to our next episode with you. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thank you.